Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, our text is verses, uh, the second half of verse 10 through verse 16, but I'm going to start reading a little bit earlier than that. Um, We're continuing our series here in 2 Peter, and this chapter is a very solemn one. It concerns the danger of false teachers, and it's We'll see, and we already began to see in our first time in chapter 2, that it's filled with very serious themes of warning. Last time, Dr. Kiefer preached on verses 1 through 10, which emphasized the certainty of God's judgment on false teachers. But this evening in our verses, we see Peter elaborate on the reasons for this judgment that is going to fall on them and on all who don't know Christ, of course, as Peter goes into more detail about the characteristics or the marks of false teachers. What are these false teachers like? How do they operate? What motivates them? What is their true character? And so hear God's Word as I read. I'm going to begin and read verses 1 through 3, since they're introductory to all of chapter 2, and then we'll skip ahead to the middle of verse 10. Hear the Word of God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then skipping down to the middle of verse 10, which starts a new paragraph in the ESV. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and help us as we seek to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What are the marks of false teachers? 
that Peter sets forth here in this section of our text. I want us to see four in our time. They are rebellious, they are sensual, they are deceptive, and they are greedy. We're going to look at each one of those. So first we want to look at the fact that these false teachers that Peter speaks about are rebellious. We see that in verses 10 through 12, the end of verse 10, bold and willful. And then he describes this question and this issue of them blaspheming. I want to read again verses 10 and 11. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. These verses have been debated, but clearly this example is intended by Peter to illustrate the arrogance and the rebellion of these false teachers. They are prideful in how they despise authority. The most likely explanation of what Peter is saying is that the pride and rebellion of these teachers come out in how they speak about these glorious ones at the end of verse 10. They blaspheme the glorious ones, literally the glories. Now, who are these glories? It's possible that they're good angels or authorities in the church, but the most likely explanation is that they are fallen angels, which is interesting. Peter has spoken about them in verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and so forth. And he talks about, we saw that last time, the term glories or glorious ones is an unusual way to speak of fallen angels, but it probably communicates the idea that these fallen angels were originally created by God. So even though they're fallen and sinful, they're still God's creation. And how exactly were these false teachers blaspheming these fallen angels? We don't know for sure, but possibly by simply denying their existence. These teachers clearly did not believe in the second coming of Christ. They did not believe in a final judgment. They might have also denied the Bible's miracles, the supernatural in the Bible, along with the whole supernatural world of the Bible. But the strongest evidence for taking these glories, these glorious ones, as fallen angels is a similar passage in the book of Jude. If you, if you turn back a few pages through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and you get to the short book of Jude, which is very similar to 2nd Peter chapter 2, in verses 8 and 9, Jude writes, Yet in like manner these people, and again he's speaking about false teachers, they also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. There's that theme of rebelliousness and re rejecting authority. And blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay, similar, isn't it? But then he goes on to use this illustration of that. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And he goes on to talk about that. So, 
Here Jude makes it clear that the devil is the foremost of these glories and um, the angel Michael did not presume to blaspheme in that sense. So we see that from all of this that it's possible somehow for pride and rebellion against God even to somehow be evident in the way someone speaks about the fallen angels. Isn't that interesting? In fact, back in our text, in verse 11, we have the positive example of the good angels, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them, which must be these glories, these evil angels, before the Lord. It's hard to follow, but that's the argument here. We see that here even good angels are careful about the way they speak about fallen angels. So we see that one of the principal marks of a false teacher is that there is no humble submission ultimately to God and his word. And it comes out in many different ways. One of them is these blasphemies about the the glorious ones. Deep down and coming out in their lives, these false teachers are arrogantly rebellious against God, against God as creator and sustainer of all things, against God's word as our only ultimate authority. And that rebellion comes out in the way that they teach and talk about salvation and all the teachings of God's word. Now stop and think about that. Ultimately, this first point is showing us that these false teachers set themselves up as a greater authority than God in some way. They probably wouldn't come out and say that, but that's the implication here. Whether it's their new teaching or new revelation they claim to receive, those things take a priority, and they're the ones who are really, they would say, in the know, and they are the ones you must listen to, and it is insidious. Think about some examples of how this arrogant rebellion shows up in false teachers. And remember, Peter isn't talking about wrong theology outside of the church in the pagan world or in the atheistic world. He's talking about false teachers rising up within the church. That's what chapter 2, verse 1 says. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Take the example of the rise of theological liberalism in the past 150 years or so. For many of us, when we were young, this false Christianity had already swept through historically solid and faithful Bible-believing denominations of all kinds and had replaced biblical Christianity that kind of false teaching was the very context of the formation of Westminster Presbyterian Church. But where was the mark of rebellion, we might ask? Where was the pride and arrogance of that false teaching? Well, it showed up primarily in scorn and ridicule that anyone would really believe the Bible as their ultimate source of authority. No, the ultimate authority of that liberal theological movement became exalting human reason above the Bible so that now human beings stand in judgment on the 
the Bible and get to pick what they like or don't like. And most of it they actually don't like. It's like Thomas Jefferson's edited Bible, where lots of it's cut out. Reason, we were told, stood in judgment on Scripture. So what is true and what is false, we ask, if that's the case. Whatever your mind wants to be true of what the Bible says, and whatever your reason tells you. And what took place was that instead of Bible-believing shepherds of God's flock, there arose wolves in sheep's clothing, that the seminaries that had become apostate put out to the church. Denying the authority of God's Word, denying the deity of Christ, denying biblical miracles and the resurrection, denying the way of salvation or even the need of salvation through the cross, minimizing sin and erasing the doctrine of God's final judgment. That's just one example of false teaching and how it arises within the church. The pastor R. Kent Hughes gives a common example of how these false teachers typically operated in the 20th century. Let me read part of what he says about this. He says, Unbelievable, I thought to myself, as I listened to members of a newly founded church describing its beginning. It started when several members of a church sensed the need for increased Bible knowledge and began attending a community Bible study where they learned that their pastor's denials of Christ's virgin birth and resurrection were at variance with what the Bible actually taught. They came to see that though their church weekly said the Apostles' Creed, their pastor had personally redefined the term so they could repeat the words, the pastors could repeat the words without actually believing them. Their leaders viewed the incarnation and resurrection of Christ as metaphors for God's presence and a life-giving source, not actual historical events. When parishioners protested, they were told they were bringing dishonor to the body of Christ by their divisiveness. The intimidation worked, and they quieted down. After all, they were only lay people. But the situation reheated when one of the pastors was discovered to be involved in sexual sin, and it was further learned that the local church authorities knew it and had been covering it up. This time, their parishioners would not be put off. They demanded changes. Again, the response was that they were dividing Christ's body and must no longer meet for Bible study or else. So, so it was that Bible-believing, creed-confessing, biblically orthodox Christians whose great offenses were believing in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ and in his ethical teachings were kicked out of the church. Unbelievable. I want us to bring this point home to all of us. Be aware of sources of authority that set themselves over the Bible. These sources are everywhere. Outside of the church, of course, in today's culture, in online sites that you might go, and those who claim to have truth can be very attractive and can be very compelling. Don't be surprised by false teachers. When you dig down into what they're saying, they're always presenting a false good news. They preach peace and healing and wholeness and happiness, but it's a false peace. There's no real problem of sin. There's no future final judgment. There's no need for a Savior. The centrality of Jesus Christ and His work is minimized, and it ends up with teaching that leads to eternal destruction. So this first point is rebellion. 
The second point is sensual. They are sensual, verses 13 and 14. And I want to back up to verse 2 again because we see it there. It says, And many will follow their sensuality in verse 2. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And then down in verse 13. I'll start in, in the middle of that verse. They count it pleasure to revel, revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. It's very possible that these false teachers of Peter's time were teaching that one could live for sinful pleasure without any thought of God's righteous judgment. And so it really didn't matter if you carried out these kinds of sins. But look at some of the ways Peter expresses the sensual, what we would say hedonistic direction of these false teachers' lives. Verse 13, it says, They counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. What an expression. In the ancient world, it was common that scandalous sin was practiced at night when darkness somehow served a little bit as a cover over immoral deeds. And so, for example, we find that the apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, verses 12 and 14, he says, So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. And Paul goes on to talk about that. So he's contrasting walking in the light and living in the daytime and not at night. But we understand then that Peter is saying these false teachers were so bold in their sensuality that they reveled in the daytime. And verse 13 goes on to say they are blots and blemishes. Interesting words. These words are describing the exact opposite of how believers are to be growing in conformity to Christ. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 14, we'll see later that Peter states, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the second coming of Christ and so forth, the new heavens and the new earth, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without, and now there are two opposite words of what we have in our text, be found by him without spot or blemish, the antonyms, the opposite words, of blots and blemishes. And so Peter goes on in verses 13 and 14, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. The early church typically had a love feast, a, a communal meal, a potluck supper associated with the Lord's Supper that would follow it. And so here Peter is saying that these false teachers are so sensual that they even turn the most solemn time of the life of the body of Christ into an occasion for sin. When I read this description, my mind goes to categories that we would now consider to be spiritually abusive and predatory. We would think about it in terms of people, teachers, preachers, in positions of authority using deception and seduction and their positions to abuse weak members of the flock. Doesn't this characteristic show us how serious even satanic 
false teaching is. It takes something holy and precious like the fellowship of the saints and turns it into an occasion for sin. So it shouldn't surprise us when we hear about news reports about some TV preacher and a scandal that gets uncovered for someone whose doctrine is clearly wrong. Of course, Bible-believing pastors can fall into scandalous sin as well. But if someone is preaching a false gospel, then typically sensuality will eventually be evident. We remember when our son, Stephen, went to do an internship in Florida, and after he had worked there for a few years, he said, Mom, Dad, there are false teachers all over the place down here. And he was working in low-income neighborhoods, visiting and working among them, sharing the gospel there. And he said, you wouldn't believe the buses that come here from churches that preach the false health, wealth, prosperity gospel. He was talking to someone who had been to a service like that, who had gotten bus there, and he said, the pastor's wife gave a 45-minute appeal to give, and if you give, then God will give back to you, and he will take care of your life. That was before the sermon even began. And he was just really disappointed and heartbroken in how false teaching was invading the lower-income areas where he worked. Eventually, that pastor's wife left her husband, by the way. Well, the third mark we find is deceptive. These false teachers are deceptive. In verse 13, the phrase, reveling in their deception. Verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. Back in verse 1, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, the idea of secretive deceptive. This idea of the deceptive nature of false teachers is a common theme in the New Testament. In fact, just to give you an example, in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, when the Apostle Paul is describing himself and his ministry, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. In other words, he's distancing himself from the common deceptive practice of the false teachers. And later on in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 and 14, speaking about false apostles, and he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Powerful verse. Even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So false teachers and false prophets disguise themselves as like. We might ask, well, how are they deceptive? It's not that they hide their teaching itself. They're very upfront about that. But what they hide is how different their teaching is to the actual teaching of the Bible. Or in Paul's day, how different their teaching was from the apostolic teaching of Paul and the other apostles. They don't want you to know that their teaching is not from the Bible and not from God. Think of the example of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Here's a church that was being confused and troubled by false teachers, and it's clear that these teachers were using all the right language. They would certainly talk about Jesus Christ and about faith and about salvation, but when it came right down to it, 
They were replacing Christ as our Savior with a method of saving yourself by good works. Yes, Christ is fine and faith is good, but ultimately you had to contribute substantially to that in order to be saved. And just listen to how Paul describes this very deceptive attack on the true gospel. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Do you notice that? They're distorting it. They're twisting it. They're reforming it. And he goes on to say, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He goes on to speak about that. Powerfully condemns these distortions, these deceptions. The point is, false teaching is tricky. It can sound very good when it's really very wrong. One question to always ask, does this teaching uphold the full deity and absolute centrality of Jesus Christ? Because that's usually the first place where false teaching goes wrong. Well, that brings us to our fourth mark, the mark of greed. Verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed. That's very similar to verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This characteristic gets to the underlying motive of false teachers. Money, right? That's why in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, Peter exhorts elders to shepherd the flock of God. And one of the One of the ways he exhorts them to do that is not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, not for personal profit. Think of all the false prophets in the Old Testament. Why did they always preach peace, peace when there is no peace? Why did the false prophets do that? Well, because that's what every king of Israel, at least every e evil king of Israel wanted to hear. He wanted to hear a message of peace. And if they preached peace, peace, then they got their paycheck nicely afterwards. The ancient pagan world was filled with teachers and so-called spiritual leaders who earned money by their false ideas and their occult practices. And really, nothing has changed. And when Peter introduces this theme, he brings that up. Just as there were false prophets, verse 1, among the people, so there will be false teachers among you. And throughout church history, false teaching has proliferated. And here in verses 15 and 16 of our text, Peter gives a famous Old Testament example of a prophet acting out of this motivation of greed with the account of Balaam. Notice he says in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. There's the greed, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. I don't know if you've recently read the story of Balaam in Numbers 22. But as you read it, you see how deeply motivated Balaam was to somehow get paid by King Balak of Moab. Balak wanted to hire Balaam to curse 
Israel that was coming through around their land. But God tells Balaam essentially, no, do not do that. And he specifically tells Balaam, you shall not go with them, these princes and these messengers that King Balak has sent to him. But Balaam really wants to get paid. And um, he finally goes with them, even though the Lord had clearly told him not to. And we read that God's anger was kindled against him as he went. So he's going, and there's this famous incident then. The donkey sees this angel of God with a sword standing in the pathway in front, and he turns off to the side, and Balaam strikes him with his stick, his staff, and then apparently the angel went further down the road and again stood there, and the donkey veered off again, didn't want to go. The donkey saw the angel. Balaam didn't. And then I'll pick up the story. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. So the donkey couldn't turn either way. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now just stop there. Your donkey speaks to you. (laughs) Balaam answered. And Balaam said to the, the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. We're seeing something of why he is called mad. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And there's conversation that goes on then about that. It's a humorous account, really, when you think of it, but it's deeply disheartening to think of Balaam and um, what Peter meant by saying that the donkey restrained the prophet's madness. I mean, Balaam wasn't insane. He was very much sane, but he was mad with greed. That's the madness that Peter is talking about here. It seems that Balaam would have done about anything to get, get around God's clear command. And actually, he goes along and he tries to curse Israel three separate times. They go up onto three different mountains and build seven altars. It's a lot of work on each mountain and offer bulls and so forth. And Balaam tries to curse Israel, but he can't. All he can do is bless them. And we learn later the way Balaam gets around it all is that he advises King Balak how to cause Israel to stumble into sexual sin and idolatry. It's a long story. But Balaam was mad, and no wonder that both the Old Testament and the New Testament Testament reference Balaam as a false prophet who eventually uh, taught King Balak how to really get the better of Israel, all because of greed. And there are all kinds of false teachers in our society, and some have done so well that they own their own jet and they own multiple mansions. 
In fact, I remember one of them being interviewed a few years ago on YouTube, and I watched part of it. I couldn't watch long of it, but I I read about the fact that this pastor, who's well-known, over 60 times when confronted in this interview about what he believed about sin and what he believed about hell and what he believed about Jesus Christ alone saves, all he could say is, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. This is a pastor of one of the biggest churches in the United States. He didn't know about all those things. In fact, wherever the seed of the gospel has been planted around the world, if you think about missions and if you know the history of missions, in very short time, once the gospel is planted, false teachers arise to deceive the flock. It's been a massive problem in all places of the globe where Christianity has taken root. False teaching arises. Let me just close with four words of application to all of us. First of all, don't be surprised by false teachers. You will know them by their fruit. That's what what Jesus says, their wrong doctrine and their wrong lives. Remember what Pastor Walker was saying this morning about watch your doctrine and watch your life. Elders and pastors need to watch themselves. We need to know true doctrine and be grounded in the Word of God so we can know when teaching is false. Like the Bereans. And we also need to know and look for wrong living, that there should be some degree of humility and some degree of godly character in a preacher or teacher's life. Yes, the best of leaders and pastors still struggle with remaining sin, but is this man humbled by the cross of Jesus Christ? Is he submissive to his brethren, his fellow elders and teachers and pastors? And is he ultimately submissive to the Word of God? And is their character deeper than something just outward and put on for show? And by the way, if you're really enticed by someone teaching online, how would you ever have answers to these questions about that person's character? Secondly, don't turn away from the Bible as your ultimate authority. Don't turn away from the Bible. Young folks in high school or college or out there in the world in your first job, if you turn away from the Bible as your ultimate authority, you will ultimately be like a ship that is tossed by the waves, Ephesians says. You will certainly go astray. And third, beware of compromising with the world. Balaam should be a reminder for all of us. People rarely abandon the gospel because they become intellectually convinced of a superior another philosophy or view or, or religion. Somehow becoming convinced that, that Jesus is false and his gospel is false by intellectual hard work. Coming to that point, no. It's not typically an intellectual decision. The reason people typically abandon Jesus Christ is that they let their wrong desires lead them astray morally into pathways of sin and ungodliness, and then Jesus and his word are more and more just forgotten. It's not that they ever saw that it was disproved, that Christianity was proved to be wrong, It's just that they became ensnared by an illicit lifestyle, and they just eventually drifted away. I've seen it more times than I would like in young adults. 
But the good news of the gospel is that there is a way of restoration. There is a way through repentance and faith by God's grace to return to the Lord like the prodigal son that we may turn anew to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, for even this hard subject that we would rather not have to think about, but that you've called us to fight the good fight of faith, to labor for the gospel, and we know that that will mean encountering many normal kind of errors, but also very serious false teaching. We pray that you would keep us as a church and keep us as individuals as we seek to be grounded in your word. Help us, Lord, to walk with you and so to be strong in Jesus Christ. And thank you that ultimately you are the one who keeps your people faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.